Good morning. We are continuing in our Hebrews 11 study. This morning, we are going to be turning the first chapter of Exodus as we get going. And so I invite you to do that. As we've moved through Hebrews 11 so far, we've seen the stories of Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. Uh, we've been taught some pretty significant truths about faith. We saw in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We see in Hebrews 11.6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. We see in Hebrews 11.10 that Abraham and, and every person who trusts in God is looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. We saw in verses 13 through 14 and, and 15 that these, uh, that these saints and everyone else has died in faith. That includes the, the people that you have known and loved, who love the Lord Jesus, who were born again in him. They died in faith, but they died without receiving the promises. They've died without receiving the promises. If the Lord tarries and you and I pass into the grave rather than passing into the heavens with him, we will die without receiving the promises. And there's reasons for that. We see at the end of Hebrews 11 that it's so that the entire body of the people of God would not be made perfect in part, but that we would all be perfected at the same time. And the truth is, as we've seen in other passages of Scripture, the the promises of God, the inheritance, will not fit on this earth. They are reserved in heaven for us. They are undiminished. They are unfading. They are undefiled. They are imperishable. They are reserved in heaven. Ephesians 1.3 calls them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There simply isn't room on the earth for the inheritance, for the blessings of God. We've seen these truths, these, these teachings of faith, illustrated in the lives of these men and women. We're going to continue to see that this morning. We are looking today to the parents of Moses. I gave Danny the, the wrong text, by the way. It, it, once I started studying, I was going to do Moses' parents and then the first part of Moses' faith story, if, if you will. And as I got into his parents, I just thought, well, I can't rush this. This is near and dear to my heart. But we're we're not going to do just half a verse. We're going to do a whole verse. There's a simple statement made in in Hebrews 11.23, and we're going to come back, but just so that you know what it says. It says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Exodus 6.20 tells us that their names were Amram, and Yochebed. So let's consider them. Uh, first, we're going to see that the family became a nation. In the first five verses or seven verses, we see that uh, uh, the, the names of the sons of Jacob that, that were read just a few minutes ago, they all went into Egypt. Joseph was already there. The number who moved were 70. Joseph was already there. That's 71. Joseph died, all of his brothers and their generation died, but the people of Israel, or the the sons of Israel, continued to 
multiply. Now, if you look at verse 7, you'll see in that one verse five statements about their multiplication and their growth in population. The sons of Israel were fruitful. That's one. They increased greatly. That's two. And multiplied. That's three. And became exceedingly mighty. That's four. So that the land was filled with them. That's five. Later in the the book of Exodus in chapter 12, we're told that there were 600,000 men who left. Now, there there are those who look at the number, the length of time that they were there, 430 years, and some begin that actually with the promise made to Abraham so that they were there for 200. I think that they were actually in the land for 430 years and that they were slaves for part of that time. If you just go start from 70 people and go to 600,000 people in 400 years, it is more than twice the historical population growth rate. If they had followed the historical population growth rate of human history, at the end of 400 years, there would have been about 12,000. But the Lord magnified their number, and we can see that represented here. Now, a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph, so he didn't know who Joseph was. He didn't know his history. He didn't know that Joseph had saved Egypt from famine. He didn't know that Joseph's plan for dealing with that famine had made the pharaohs fabulously wealthy both in money and in property as the people traded even their land for food he said to his people in verse 9 behold this people of the sons of israel are more and mightier than we come let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us, and depart from the land. This Pharaoh then made four attempts to control the Hebrew population that are laid out in the the remainder of chapter 1. The aim wasn't to destroy them. The aim wasn't just to kill them. They wanted them as a labor force. He didn't want them, at the end of verse 10, he didn't want them departing from the land, neither did he want them strong enough to fight against the Egyptians. So beginning with an idea of population control, plan one is in verse 11. They appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, notice here, here's the sixth and seventh statements about the population growth. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. And so that they were... The Egyptians were in dread of the sons of Israel. So plan one didn't work. It actually worked in the opposite way. Plan two was brutal slave labor. Verse 13, the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Now, plan two didn't work either, and we know that because of the next thing that happens. That's the third plan, and the third plan is a a secret murder. And it's, it's very subtle. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other was named Puah, And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. I think that 
what we're being told is that the midwives, when the baby was born, if it was a boy, they were to simply smother that child and tell the mother, oh, it was stillborn. See, as the story goes on, the midwives feared God. They didn't do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but they let the boys live. So he called them and he said, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? Now look at their answer. Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. If these midwives were commanded just to slaughter the babies at birth, it wouldn't have mattered if they were there at the moment of birth or not. They would have simply come in, seen that baby boys were there, and killed them. This is a secret plan. The infant mortality rate must have been fairly significant in Egypt at the time, as it probably was in most of the ancient world for most of human history. The midwives... Fear God, not Pharaoh. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. So there's the, the, the eighth and ninth statements about the growth of the Hebrew population. And because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Plan three didn't work. The Hebrew population continued to grow explosively. <coughs> so the fourth plan is simply open murder. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, the Egyptians, saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So he makes every Egyptian an instrument of murder. I can't help but see parallels here to Germany in the 1930s, 1940s with a hatred toward the people of God that was so pronounced, so profound, that the general populace is brought into the plan. Chapter 2 begins with a a description, a a statement about Amram and Jochebed. Now, a man from the house of Levi, that's Amram, went and married a daughter of Levi, that's Jochebed. And so just stop for just a second. Think about the world in which this young couple got married. It's a a world which hasn't known Joseph. It's a world where the people of Israel are under a terrible bondage of slavery, where little boys now are, are being drowned in the Nile. Moses had... Two older siblings, Miriam is the oldest, we'll, we'll see her in a moment. She's old enough that when Moses is, is born, she's old enough to stand by the Nile and watch what happens when Jochebed puts him in the Nile. We'll, we'll see that in a minute. Aaron, in chapter 7, we're told, is three years older than Moses. I think Aaron might have been born during that time when the midwives were supposed to kill these babies, and obviously they didn't. This is the world in which they lived. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. And we see that same sort of a statement in in Hebrews 11.23. They they feared God and they kept this baby alive and they protected him because they saw that he was beautiful. Now, this is not beautiful in appearance. The, The word can mean that in a basic sense. It can mean beautiful or handsome or pleasing to the eye they're not saying that the ugly babies were killed and the beautiful babies weren't 
That, that would just be a terribly shallow way to look at this. There was something about Moses when he was born, and, and you know, there, there's no ultrasounds. They don't know if they're having a boy or a girl. I don't know. We're not told, but they might have been praying for a girl so that their child would not be at any risk. And then when the baby is born, they realize it's a boy that you've got this combination of deep joy, but also fear. But as they look at this baby, the Holy Spirit gave them faith. This is not just their baby. There is something unique about this child. The word beautiful in in the Hebrew text in Exodus 2.2 is the word good. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 1. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good. God saw that it was good six times. And then the last time in the last verse, behold, God saw that it was very good. So this is something that is sound, pleasing. It is right. Everything has come together. And so they, they hid him for three months. They had to make sure that Miriam didn't talk about the new baby brother and that Aaron didn't talk about the new baby brother. Have you ever tried to get a three-year-old not to talk? They kept him quiet. They, they, kept, him back in the, they kept him back in the hut as, as Amram was forced to do whatever labor he was doing. Yochebed did everything that she could to keep the baby quiet. Let's let, not let anybody know. But the time came when they couldn't hide him any longer. And, and by the way, I hope you don't miss the comparison to the baby Jesus who also faced a ruler who wanted him dead and who was also hidden in Egypt. There's a prophetic foreshadowing of the deliverer of our souls in the birth of the deliverer of a nation. When she could hide him no longer, verse 3 says, she got him a wicker basket And she covered it over with tar and pitch to make it waterproof. And then she put the child into it and she set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. There's such a contrast. Pharaoh says in verse 22 of chapter 1, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile. And Jochebed makes a basket and she gently places the baby in the basket and she gently sets it among the reeds. Walks away, leaving it floating there with little Miriam, perhaps five, six, seven years old, watching to see what would happen. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the boy was crying and she had pity on him. She said, this is one of the Hebrew children. This pity that she had is is not an emotion only. It's an action. See, this is the daughter of the man who's ordered the murder of these little boys. 
And the natural thing for her to do as her father's daughter, as a princess of Egypt, would have been simply to tip the basket. But the Lord touched her heart. And she not only felt pity, she acted. God worked in this woman's heart to give favor to the baby. We don't know where where Jochebed is. Verse 7 says, His sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from you? From the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the, the child's mother Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to Jochebed, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses and said, because I drew him out of the water. What's interesting is I was studying this. Um, Ancient names, ancient languages often often changed words to emphasize meaning. We see that in the, in the Greek New Testament. We see it in, in Hebrew as well. So there's the basic word drawn out. And Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses because she drew him out. But she actually uses the wrong tense. It doesn't mean he who is drawn out. She used a tense that means he who draws out. See, there's a prophetic statement here that Moses is going to deliver Israel, and he is going to draw Israel out. You see the hand of God? Think for a moment about Amram, Arm. Amram and Jochebed hiding this baby for three months by faith and then by faith putting him in the basket and setting him floating in the reeds not in the open river but among the reeds faith never changes its object its object is always God but faith can change its objective the objective was to protect this baby as long as they could and then when they could no longer protect him ultimately to try and safeguard him to the best of their ability. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Amram and Jochebed trusted the Lord rather than fearing the king and rather than giving into that fear, They trusted, they hid Moses, and then they did what they had to do, trusting the Lord with the outcome. Think about bringing this home then. Our world is is really not that much different. We have technology. We have uh, synthetic clothing. We have the ability to farm thousands of acres at a time with, with one machine rather than uh, a whole a man and his sons farming a few hundred acres and killing themselves to do that. We don't have a pharaoh who's trying to kill our children, but we do have a culture that's trying to kill them. 
that's trying to destroy them, that's trying to pull them away from life, trying to pull them away from the Lord Jesus. We're reading more and more about perverted men who call themselves drag queens, reading books to children in public libraries, being invited in, being given a place to do that. In some places, courts are requiring that even elementary schools allow elementary-age children to use whatever bathroom uh, they identify with in their, in their self-identified gender identity. One of the worst things that happens is the religion of Darwinism and evolutionism are taught at the earliest ages throughout the public school system, from preschool all the way up through the highest levels. Uh, Religious faith, most of all Christian faith, is denigrated and mocked and marginalized. It's not true of every teacher, and it's not true of every school. It's not even necessarily true of every school district, but it is the norm around our country. And the things that are happening on the coasts arrive in the Midwest. Maybe a decade later, maybe two decades later, but they arrive here. Our culture is going to force us and is forcing us to be Amrams and Yochabeds. People who make the protection of their children a priority. And we have something that Amram and, and Yochebed also had, we serve a mighty God who is jealous for his people and who loves his people and who seeks to defend them and protect them. And we can trust him because he is sovereign over every aspect of life. And just as Sarah did in Hebrews 11 We can consider that God is absolutely faithful. We can trust his person. We can trust his power. We can trust his character. Now, the story of Amram and Jochebed is the story of two parents. You may not have kids. You may not have kids at home. You may not see how this applies to you. But it does apply to you if you have unsafe friends, unsafe family. You just make a couple of adjustments there And the same thing holds true. Uh, Faith means two things for us, just to bring it fully modern. It means raising our kids in Christ. First of all, raising our kids in Christ. We can't protect them forever. And even while we can protect them, we can't protect them from every danger while they're under our authority. But we can bring them before the Lord in prayer. We can raise them in biblical truth. And we can live our faith faithfully before them as an example. And we've got something that Amram and Jochebed didn't have. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. This couple didn't have any written scripture. They trusted in what they knew of God, but what they knew of God was was minuscule compared to what you and I know. We have the gospel. So our kids need to know that God is holy and that sin is punished. They need to know that they were born in sin and that they continue to sin and that sin brings the judgment of God. They need to know that God sent a Savior, Jesus Christ. They need to know that Jesus lived a holy life 
He earned the righteousness of God. He died to save sinners. And he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. They need to know that he saves all who repent of their sins and who call upon him in faith. They need to know that he is sufficient to save them from every sin and every aspect of the judgment of God. They need to know that he is a powerful, mighty, wonderful Lord who will preserve them and protect them in the difficulties of their life. They need to know that. They need to hear this from the scriptures. And they need to hear it from you. They need to hear it from you. There is no danger in this world worse than the judgment of God to come. There is no better preparation for this life than being raised in Christ. And second, faith means relinquishing our our kids to their God. Amram and Jochebed had three months, and then ultimately the Lord gave them a couple of more years until the baby was weaned, but they had three months, and then they had to relinquish him. We have to relinquish our kids to the Lord. We're probably going to have to do that before we think they're ready, before we think we're ready. I had this really strange experience. February 18th of this year, we were in San Antonio, Texas for our daughter Grace's graduation from uh, Air Force basic military training. That first day, then uh, there's a couple different things that happen, and we could see her from a distance out in the crowd, and she was in the the band flight, and, and so they marched over to where they were going to be dismissed and they had to put instruments away. And we walked over and they were all lined up and she was facing this way. And I, I could see her. I could see her. And I longed to run to my girl. But I couldn't. Because she was at attention and she hadn't been released yet. I couldn't because I had relinquished her. The Air Force only keeps them for a time. God has them forever. We have to relinquish our kids to their God. We have to trust him and believe that he loves them more than we do, that he can care for them in ways we can't begin to care for them. It's so easy to say. It's so hard to do. Yochebed grabbed the best basket that she could find. She got tar, basically liquid asphalt, coming out of the ground, and she coated it, and then pitch, and we don't really know what that word refers to. But she used two different things to waterproof that basket, and she probably lined it, and she laid the baby in that basket, smothered him with kisses, maybe covered him with a blanket, and then she went down and she set it floating among the reeds. Don't we, we must not think that she just put it among the reeds and walked away singing a tune. She had to have died a little inside. She had to have made her fingers pull away from that basket. And to walk away and to leave another child to watch to see what would happen. Let's not romanticize her Let's not make her a two-dimensional mythical figure who just put that baby down and bebopped down the road. 
They had done what they could, and then they relinquished their child to the Lord. As painful as that was, we do what we can. We all do something a little different. We all begin at a different place. Our kids are different people. We can't program these results. We can't predict the outcome. If you can't predict the outcome anyway, you may as well relinquish them into the hands of God. Faith in the sovereignty and the power of God doesn't make us indifferent to the dangers that our children face or to the risks that this world brings to them or the suffering that they experience. It means that we surrender our love for them to him. It means that we bow our heads before him as our father as well as their father. It means that we trust that his love and his power is infinitely greater than ours and that he will glorify his name in him. By his grace, maybe we'll get to see a little of his work in them. But you know, maybe the greatest work the Lord will do in your kids won't happen until after you're gone. Maybe the changes in their life, maybe the the rescue of their souls, if it comes to that, maybe the use of them in ministry won't come until they're your age now. We can't control those things. We can only give them over to the Lord. And we may not see much fruit in their lives until we've been joined to that great cloud of witnesses. And we're given different eyes. But in the meantime, the faith of Amram and and Jacobed says, do what you can for your kids. And then give them into the hands of God and trust him. Father, we thank you for your word and for the love that you have for us. We thank you that your love for our kids is infinitely greater than our love for them. We thank you that your love for our friends and family, those who don't know you, is infinitely greater than our love for them. We thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. We thank you, Lord, that you are all-powerful and all-wise. We thank you that you are good in every way. Lord, as we submit our kids into your hands, we have to be reminded that we are submitting ourselves into your hands as well. Because we can't protect ourselves. We can't govern ourselves very well either. Lord, I ask that while we keep the object of our faith always and forever, you your purpose, your wisdom, your glory. Help us to let the objective of our faith shift from having children who are respectful and polite and civil and coming to know you to having children who are making good decisions, who... uh, are seeking to grow in wisdom and and ultimately, Lord, to having children who know you and who love you. 
meaning that they must walk the path that you have designed for them. We would all keep our children at home. We would all take our friends and family who don't know you and who suffer in life and keep them protected from the hard realities of the world. You use those things. You're not afraid of them, and you use them to achieve your purposes. And so like this this precious man and woman, the parents of Moses, would you grant us faith in you and in your purposes? And help us, Lord, to bow our hearts before you as our Father. And we ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.